Welcome to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast, brought to you by DonorSearch, the show that takes you inside the lives of thought leaders, innovators, and change makers in fundraising, philanthropy, and civil society. I'm your host, Jay Frost. Krista Slade is an international leader whose epic voyage from Toronto to Hong Kong, Melbourne, Singapore, Oxford, and back again has had a major and lasting impact on the size, shape, and scope of advancement programs around the world. In today's episode, we take that journey with her, learning about each of these unique environments, the challenges and the successes, and the enduring characteristic which continues to fuel her optimism for the work we do in fundraising and philanthropy. I'm going to guess I'm your first ever guest uh, joining you from St. Jones Within, which is within the harbor of Trinity Bay in Newfoundland on the far east coast, far north in the North Atlantic. And it's a really beautiful little spot, fishing community. And uh, yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful part of the world, but pretty remote. How did you find yourself there? This is my family's cottage slash cabin. You have to be careful if you say cottage sounds a bit pretentious in Newfoundland. So everyone says cabin. So this is our family. It's a, it's a, just a lovely spot that we've had in our family for, for a number of years. And it's a, yeah, lovely place to be. I'm normally based in Toronto though, right in the downtown part of the city. So this is a real, a real change for me. But have <laughs> from you, my normal. Have- Habitat. Have you been going back there for for a long time? I mean, is this a place? Is this oh. a childhood place, or no? Not not as long as that. Um, but I've certainly been coming back to Newfoundland since my childhood. I mean, I was you know raised in Toronto and certainly consider myself from Toronto. But my family on both sides going back many many generations um, <laughs> in Newfoundland. So many oh, okay. of my family members are still here. So. How yeah. far back? I'm actually to the early 1700s, which is kind of amazing uh, on both sides of my family. Newfoundland was the first part of North America that was uh, settled by the English. And some people may know that the Vikings were here hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And it was the first overseas colony that Great Britain had. So my ancestors were fishermen uh, on one side and uh, they settled here and somehow made a go of it. It's a pretty tough place to live. It's a pretty rugged and harsh landscape, um, but it's a wonderful part of the country. And uh, I, I feel very, very grounded when I come back here because of that long familial history. Um, and also they were great seafarers. So even though they lived here, they often went all over the world uh, trying to, you know, support their families through fishing and transporting goods and materials. I had a great grandfather who died a hundred years ago this year in Seville and he's buried in Seville and he was a great navigator who went all over the world and now with all these amazing genealogical digital resources have tracked down amazing things about you know adventures he had going to South America and to all over like Portugal Spain Italy um down to the Caribbean. Anyway, so all to say, I come from a family of wanderers. So you won't be surprised that I've worked outside of Canada a lot of my career. I kind of come by it honestly. So yeah, I, I was going to say, I mean, you, even if you're grounded in a place like Toronto and their deep roots, uh, you've spent a lot of your life running around the world. And that's where we first met was, was uh, through that work. 
In fact, I can't even think back when it first was, but I know that you were with the University of Toronto early in, in your career, and the office there was already pretty profound in its links to the rest of the world. And I, I know you can tell us about that, but when did you first join them? I mean, how did that come about and how did you find your way into this world of development that we're in? Well, spoiler alert, Jay, I didn't grow up wanting to be a fundraiser. I'm sure that's <laughs> the case with virtually every person that you talk to. It you know, wasn't any kind of a career that I would have identified. But like many of your, your guests and many of our colleagues, I kind of got involved uh, happily uh, as a student leader. Um, I was you know quite involved with the student government and had a job working um, as an alumni relations assistant uh, for the office in Toronto. And I had uh, a great experience doing that, really enjoyed working, working for the university in that role and had the great fortune of being uh, chosen by the Rotary Foundation. So if there's any Rotarians mm. that are listening, I want to thank Rotary International and the Rotary Foundation because they gave me a scholarship to go and study in Hong Kong. And I set off in 1992 uh, to do a program in Hong Kong at the uh, Chinese University of Hong Kong. It was called the Yale and China Program. It was sort of administered by uh, that university in New Haven <laughs> at and the Chinese University of Hong Kong. But it was through this Rotary scholarship and this, you know, great benefaction that I had the chance to go. And my my manager, when I was working in the alumni relations office, said, oh, you're going to Hong Kong. We have so many graduates there and we'd love to do a better job of keeping in touch with them. And this is all pre-email, you know, this is still things being sent out by fax and by post and by the phone. So she basically offered me uh, the opportunity to work one day a week as an alumni relations assistant for the uh, association in Hong Kong. And I jumped at the chance really more to meet people and to, you know, make the most of my year while I was there. Cause I didn't know a soul in Hong Kong when I set off and that introduced me to an incredible community of supporters. And I just met amazing people and realized there was a lot of potential there uh, building on this strong, you know, alumni community to actually raise money for scholarships uh, and other things at the university. And so as you know, timing is everything. So I was kind of there on the ground. I think most of the alumni in Hong Kong were kind of trying to figure out who is this woman from Toronto who's come out and is organizing us and getting us together. And they were very supportive, as I said, very friendly, very welcoming. And I kind of created my first job. So I finished my program of study um, and basically created a full-time job for myself, setting up this foundation office in Hong Kong. And it was amazing. So that's how I got into it. <laughs> Not I, I, by I, design. <laughs> I think uh, I went to a conference uh, many years ago and John Delandry was describing the foundation of this office. Uh, how this how this all started. And so now in my mind, it's this kind of fog, but I seem to remember this whole story about one day a week, then turning into several days a week, turning into a full-time operation, and this whole 10-year plan. And you were in the, in the heart of that. So how much of that really was a plan and how much of it was organic growth? It's never, of course, entirely one thing or the other, but I mean, I had the good fortune to be there at the right time was, you know, the lead up to the handover in 1997. A lot of people that had ties to Toronto, ties to Canada, who were 
you know, looking to be philanthropic, uh, the university was starting this big campaign, the kind of great minds for a great future. And under John's leadership and Ruby Frankel's leadership, you know, they gave me um, incredible <laughs> opportunity. So it scaled up from very modest beginnings. I mean, literally, I was working off the side of half a desk over top a jewelry store you know, in central Hong Kong that was owned by our alumni association president uh, who, whose family owned, owned the business and owned a lot of other things in Hong Kong and Macau. Uh, This is the uh, Stanley Ho's uh, family uh, who were at that time, of course, and and to this day have been incredibly generous supporters of higher education. So, you know, it started off, I think we did a lot of things by trial and error just to kind of see how things might work. But the you know, it, it folded in so neatly with the university's campaign and that emphasis on internationalization. I think U of T was very much a pioneer in doing that um, and, and really wanting to be strategic about how it was regularly involving graduates and parents and new students and not just going off opportunistically once a year, you know, having me on the ground and, you know, and eventually I had an additional colleague. And, you know, at, at one point we were up to three people, but, you know, we were there throughout the year and really building, I think, a comprehensive advancement operation, which included student recruitment, which was great because we got to meet a lot of, you know, incoming students, got to meet a lot of the parents, uh, but also, of course, you know, big emphasis on the major gifts program to support the scholarships, uh, which got basically set up in 1995. And, you know, it's just been remarkable to see how those young people who we supported all those years ago have flourished and are now involved in the foundation. So it's that wonderful kind of virtuous circle, but the short version is I really genuinely think it happened (laughs) with a combination of just timing and sort of serendipitous circumstances, but also very much the investment from the university that they wanted to engage with their international alumni and that, you know, Hong Kong for all kinds of reasons was a great place to do that. It seems like it was uh, rare then, probably to some degree rare today as well. And, but also the timing of that was so exceptional because, as you say, it was working up towards 97. And and for those who don't understand that time, can you describe what that was like to work in Hong Kong right before the transition? Wow. Well, it was a... Uh... It was quite a remarkable period. And I mean, I had studied history um, as, a, you know, as a student, so it was fascinating to be there to kind of see really the end of empire for the British in, uh, in Asia, because they were, of course, you know, stepping back. And it was actually quite nostalgic to kind of see like Chris Patton, who was the last governor of Hong Kong. And, you know, they were they were winding up while, of course, the Chinese repatriation and kind of reunification with the with the homeland with the mainland Uh, so there was this mix of you know nostalgia I think for what had been over the last you know 150 plus years of uh, British you know colonization I think at that time there was a great deal of uh, enthusiasm you know patriotism sense of real history that things were going back to to China and that this was the right time and that it may not be exactly clear how it was going to actually work out. But I think people had good faith that, you know, it was going to be a very 
exciting chapter for Hong Kong. And it was also a period where there was enormous investment in all kinds of new, like the new airport was just being built. Massive infrastructure, you know, the MRT, which is the mass rapid transit, like this incredible subway system was expanding. You know, they were building new social housing. It was a real period of expansion and optimism and tinged with that bit of nostalgia for you know, the kind of winding down of the of the British Empire. And I, I just an absolutely fascinating place to be. And, you know, when people found out you were from Canada, there was a great affinity because at that time, I think there were about 150,000 Canadian passport holders or Canadian citizens who lived in Hong Kong. So you'd meet people all over the place who had a connection back to Canada, actually facilitated a lot of those relationships. It was just again, right place, right time. But it was a very, very, like, just dynamic, <laughs> you know, there were a number of things that happened, like the Asian financial crisis, there was the avian blue, sorry, avian flu uh, pandemic. Uh, the, I was there, uh, actually, I was actually living uh, more in Singapore at the time when uh, SARS broke out. So, you know, we we kind of were living through some pretty, pretty interesting times. And of course, it's, it's been interesting to see how it's unfolded since the 1997 handover. But at that time, it was certainly one of great optimism and uh, just it was just a really dynamic place to be. And, you know, Hong Kong has always been such an international open city with, you know, people from all over the world kind of coming to make their fortune. And uh, so it's, again, it's just been fascinating to kind of see the last few years, how things have changed and and continue to be pretty challenging there. But it was a, at that time, it was a golden period to be in Hong Kong. And I'm just, you know, so grateful I was there when I was. And I will always love Hong Kong. It'll always be one of my absolutely favorite cities in the world. It's an amazing place. Now you were there until around 2002, is that right? Or Yes, I was there for about 10 years. And, uh, and then I actually... Uh, moved to Melbourne. I was working in Australia. So I kind of moved even further away from Toronto. Um, but that was kind of to cover more of a regional, regional role for the university based out of Australia. And also too, just the pollution was becoming more and more problematic for me living in Hong Kong. So I had oh. developed really serious asthma as a result of living there. So for health reasons, I just couldn't continue to live there full time. So that was part of what, that's part of what prompted my move. But sure. I'm trying to think about the pollution in Hong Kong because in in the rest of of China it can be pretty extraordinary, yeah. and that's just a facet of that huge economic growth, I guess. All those coal fired plants and everything else, but it was also that time when so much wealth uh, and still today it, it was and is being created as a result of all this. But it it's it's uh, led to a lot of other issues, and and I suppose that's also been opportunities in a way for philanthropy. Um, for people to look not just outside, how do we work with uh, with the places we went to school and the other things we care about abroad, but also inside the country? Um, were you already sensing some of that about kind of this looking inward, not not in a, in in a way to um, to address some of these interests and and needs? Sure. I mean, I would say um, Jay, you've kind of hit the nail on the head that you know the the say high high net worth, very successful people uh, that we got to know through the foundation. Uh, they were really driven, I think, by two things, I'd say. Primarily supporting education, I think, is just such a part of the Confucian social norms, or it's very much ingrained 
in their philanthropic culture to support education. And so that, that was obviously a very good thing. And I think secondly, you know, the people that I had the privilege to work with, they were very much, I think, wanting to invest in young people who mm. wouldn't have had the chance to study. That was very much, um, I think, at the core of our success, well, just giving that sort of opportunity to those students. And there was a matching campaign that was available from the university at the time. There were also a number of large principal gifts and major, major gifts that came in that were tied to supporting research at the university that would benefit you know, Hong Kong and the kind of the relationship between um, Canada and East Asia. So for example, there was a new program that was launched um, in Asia Pacific studies that was funded by one of our benefactors. And again, that wouldn't have been possible if we didn't have that kind of leadership from the donors based in Hong Kong. So I think it really was a, a mutually beneficial relationship and that the university was able to attract amazing students who mm-hmm. just didn't have the financial resources to come. Um, and it also allowed us to engage in a lot more research um, and, you know, scholarship uh, about that part of the world, which is, of course, so so important to Canada and to Canadians to know more, given how much uh, immigration is, you know, enriching our society. And- there, there used to be these discussions long ago about what was the Pacific Rim and <laughs> how far people, you know, where people would uh, would draw those yeah. geographic lines. And clearly Canada made this kind of decision. I don't know if that was a governmental decision or that on the part of educational institutions or transnationals who just saw Canada as a friendly place to, to, to do work and business and spend part of their time, if not to emigrate, that um, Canada was a part of the Pacific Rim in ways that the United States maybe was not, with the exception of California, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I would say that Canada actually was you know, particularly on the immigration front was very, I think, very wise to really, you know, invest heavily in their immigration program to attract uh, talented immigrants, uh, particularly from China and, and Hong Kong and Taiwan and, you know, the kind of East Asia and also South Asia through their, you know, it's a very good program in Canada, which is based around, you know, kind of talent and attracting capital uh, and, gives a little more flexibility for people when they choose to immigrate. You can be declared a non-residency and not be liable for worldwide income tax the way <laughs> the way American passport holders are. So, you know, there were some very smart decisions that were made because Canada needs more people and obviously needs, you know, talent and capital. So I think it's all been for the good. Now, then you went on to Melbourne and uh, pollution aside and all that, boy, what a switch that must have been. So how was it to, to be there? And how was the work different as well? Both the, you know, the, the life for you, but also the work in philanthropy. Well, Melbourne was, I have to say, and continues to be just a highlight of my working career that I had the chance to live there for a few years. And Partly that's because when I was a kid, I was absolutely obsessed with Australia. I was completely <laughs> loved Australia and, you know, was uh, just, you know, did all kinds of like geography projects on Australia. So it was a real dream of mine to actually get there and to have the chance to work there was really kind of a life highlight. And Australia and Canada have, of course, quite a few things in common in terms of their history and, you know, the uh, big commodity, commodity agriculture resource, uh, you know, immigrant societies, big countries with uh, not a huge amount of 
arable land. So there's a lot of similarities there. Um, and I found Australians to be incredibly welcoming and, you know, they have a great quality of life and they have a great approach to life uh, in many respects. Um, I have to say, I think that the Canadian experience that I had working at University of Toronto in the role that I, I took up at the University of Melbourne, where I was working basically as a strategic advisor to the president of the university, the vice president, vice chancellor of the University of Melbourne, you know, it was it was actually really helpful, I think, to be able to look at what had worked at Toronto and to say, well, how might we scale this to a Melbourne setting? And what might work, what might have to change? I think it actually was a, for me, it was just personally an incredibly interesting and enriching experience. But I think it was also very good for the university. You know, they would look at these huge campaigns in the U.S. that, you know, because of course everyone would say, well, look at what Harvard's doing or why aren't we raising money like Stanford? (laughs) And, you know, that was just so overwhelming, I think, for these big public institutions that had long history distinguished public, uh, real, you know, they were public universities and didn't have that spirit of, of alumni giving that, of course, is just endemic in the United States and particularly at elite institutions. So I think it actually worked out really well uh, for the university and they've just completed a massive campaign, which I was so, you know, believe campaign at the University of Melbourne. And I can't claim any, any credit for it, but, you know, I know a lot of the work that I did initially in terms of helping them set up their office and not set up their office. They already had an office, but it really needed to be revisited and and revised and actually recapitalized in terms of, you know, infrastructure and staffing. And, but it had, I think it had been floundering for a while just because there wasn't a lot of investment and there was a lot of skepticism at the university about fundraising so when I first arrived, you know, I, I can still remember clear as day. I'd been there about a week. A you know, very kind colleague uh, from the vice chancellor's office, who's a you know, very senior academic, invited me to lunch. And, you know, we were chatting about things. And he said, well, you know, really glad you're here. Oh, happy you've come. But you have no chance of being remotely successful in this job because <laughs> nobody in Australia will give money to higher education nobody cares. And, you know, in the nicest possible way, like, <laughs> basically, it's, it's, and it was, a, you know, I was, of course, a little uh, taken aback, a bit overwhelmed and a bit horrified and said, well, you know, I've <laughs> moved my life to be here in Australia. And this is my, you know, I'm, I'm a tenacious person and <laughs> I'm going to do what I can. And, you know, and the, then he actually gave me some very good advice, which I have, always remembered and I have shared with other people who work in higher education. And it was basically, you need to find, there are 10 people in this university who are really influential and they may, some of them are obvious, like you could, you know, the chair of the academic board, the chancellor of the university and others. But then he took me through other people that wouldn't have been obvious to me that they actually had a lot of like moral authority and that they were really highly trusted by their peers, um, staff and faculty. Um, He said, I think if you can get in front of these 10 people and think of them as being a bit of a cabinet for you, like a bit of a kitchen cabinet, Mm -hmm. that's, that's the only way you have any chance of making a difference. And so that was, uh, that was in like week, I don't know, it was like day five. So I, you know, went out and started meeting with these 10 people. And sure enough, really was wise advice and 
you know, I think that a lot of the work that I did was around changing the culture at the university and getting the, particularly the academic leadership and the, the, the senior uh, principal, who was basically the chief administrative officer, to actually realize that, you know, they spent money on all kinds of other functions for outcomes. But yet, when it came to development, or, you know, at that time, it was called university development, you know, if it didn't just magically come in, it was doomed to fail. And so they starved it, and it didn't have the proper people, it didn't have proper budgets. And then it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. So that was a fascinating, fascinating time. I really enjoyed it. I had a great time just living in Australia and traveled a lot, got to see, um, it's an incredible country. Um, it's a long way. It's a long way from many other places, most other places. That's why Australians are such great travelers. The ones that you see pre COVID who would be on the road, they go on these massive trips and they're away for weeks, if not months at a time, because they value their time off, but also it just takes them so long to to get get anywhere. So when case came calling, that was, uh, that was kind of an appealing time to move. And I do want to ask you about that. Uh, But before we go on to that, I'm so glad you told this story because the way you described it, it's so often what I've heard too, over the years, one thing is it, it won't work here. Fundraising won't work. But then when you dig a little deeper, what the real concern is, they don't think that people will give. You, you talked through that right there that of course they do. And, and you can speak to it about how generous people are in Australia and certainly in Canada and in Hong Kong. In each of these environments, people are extraordinarily generous, but they do. Well, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but in my impression is they need to be invited. So, so that's why developments or fundraising is so important. Um, No, absolutely. And, you know, Jay, the other interesting thing, particularly about, um, Melbourne, uh, Melbourne University was, you know, as I said, I'd studied history and love history. And so I did a bit of research on the foundation, you know, the founding of the University of Melbourne. And it's, you know, really incredible, incredible uh, 150 years, I think, at the, at the point when I was there. And of course, what I found out, and you will love this, given your background, these amazing stories of philanthropists who had made the founding of the university really possible, right? Like it sense that, oh, you know, only Americans give to higher education. This is not part of our story. If you actually go back, um, it's very much part of their story. And the University of Melbourne is the university that's today because of many of those early benefactors who have a university in Melbourne, but also to open it up to, to others. And, you know, um, there's some incredible stories of gifts that had come in many, many like decades before. So it wasn't an alien thing. The second thing I think that helped in terms of changing the culture is I I also came to realize that it wasn't just skepticism. It was also a lot of fear Mm. because I think a number of the academics, and again, this is is like probably the one of the, well, certainly one of the top three universities in Australia and one of the best in the world. But, you know, many of these academics are, not used to feeling uncomfortable in, in administrative space or, you know, outside of their, you know, once they get, start to get into this area where they feel a little, um, you know, like it's, it's, it's something they haven't done before. They maybe think they're going to do it badly or they're going to be embarrassed or it's that whole kind of begging bowl 
Now, I think that has changed really like that, that culture shift has changed dramatically, but that was still very much part of the, you know, I think the mindset then that, you know, I'm going to look, I'm going to look like an idiot if I go out asking for it's somehow not what I should be doing. No, and I'm going, I'm uncomfortable doing it. So one of the things that we did, and, you know, and this was with the absolute endorsement and leadership of the vice chancellor, uh, Professor Glenn Davis, who was a remarkable, remarkable man to work with, a wonderful, wonderful, you know, administrative leader and a great leader in Australia. And he's now running a big foundation in Australia. But one of the, so he's really now totally converted. He's working in philanthropy full time. But one of the things that we did is we actually started a kind of breakfast roundtable for academics to hear from their peers who were engaged in this kind of work. So one of the first people we brought in, uh, we found out that the uh, Dean of Engineering at Berkeley, at University of California, Berkeley, was an Australian who was graduate of the University of Melbourne, who was one of the top deans at Berkeley in terms of fundraising. And he was back home. Um, he was Richard Newton, unfortunately, passed away a number of years ago, but he was a remarkable person and he agreed to come and talk to them. And so we had this great, very candid conversation where he talked about what he did as dean and his role as the academic lead and why he was passionate about advocating for his students and his colleagues and their research programs and scholarships and all kinds of things and what the role of the staff was and what he spent on fundraising and the return on investment. And I could almost see the light bulbs going off around the table and they, they really would listen to him because of course he had that credibility as a peer uh, to sort of share what he was doing. And, you know, he was, he was very, as most Australians are, he was very direct. He was very candid. And uh, we talked about the good, the bad and the ugly, but the message was, I have learned how to do this. I'm properly supported to do it. I invest in it. I invest my time, but I also invest resources. And the return has been, you know, phenomenal. And we're now able to do so many more things because we have this private support that wouldn't have been possible just on the public and, you know, intuition. So things like that, I think, were um, kind of falling into place at the right time. But that really did, I think, shifted the mindset quite dramatically from when I first arrived, where it was sort of a little bit of this, like I said, you know, what's the kind of magic secret sauce that works? Um, Tell us and then, you know, that'll be it. Like they had to do the work themselves. And they did. And, you know, the results are, of course, speaking for themselves, you know, all these years later. Well, and, and of course, they recognized, I guess, the value in this, at least some did. That's exactly why you came in the first place. Then for Case to talk to you and you decide to, well, for you to decide to leave Melbourne must have been something because you were already, I know, enjoying this work immensely and it was having the success. I'm I'm imagining what it must have been like to make a decision to go uh, and and do this work in uh, throughout the rest of Asia in places where maybe they were not there yet. They were starting to think about what is the role of philanthropy to not just education, but all throughout, you know, civil society and, and will people give and to what, and you had to build all these networks again. So how, how did this come about that you decided to take that role and, uh, and what was the mandate for that? Wow. Well, again, just timing and obviously people, Uh, I, had been a long time member of case and a huge fan 
of Case and its many, <laughs> the many wonderful things that Case made possible for me in terms of training and development and network um, and just building confidence as a, you know, a kind of early career um, fundraiser, alumni relations uh, professional. So I just was a member of the Case tribe, as we like to say. And I think also, you know, when Joanna Motion, who of course you will know Jay and Joanna is a remarkable person, just an amazing uh, human. And had, I think, been such a passionate advocate for Case looking outside of the United States and I guess uh, Canada to a lesser degree and to becoming, you know, much more of an international organization and not just exporting what worked in Virginia or Michigan Mm-hmm. to, you know, uh, Malaysia or Vietnam, but actually thinking about what can we take that works, but really make it culturally, we'll do it incrementally. It's not going to be this kind of massive rollout. It's going to have to grow organically. And there was a very solid business plan in place that Joanna and her colleagues um, had on with a lot of care. And also John Lippincott, who was the president of Case at the time, was a huge advocate for this. And I, I want to say, you know, for both John and Joanna, you know, in hindsight, of course, it was absolutely the right thing to do for Case. And it's worked out to be, I think, a huge for the Case organization as a whole. But none of those things were given at the time. And it took an enormous amount of, I think, moral courage to do that. And they had worked, I think, really carefully with the board of Case, because obviously the board of Case is responsible for making sure that the strategic uh, strategic plan and is, you know, something that's sustainable for the organization that's going to be prudent for all of the members. John and Joanna really like I said, and Julian Bivens, who was, the, you know, the chair of the board at that time from the University of Virginia, a wonderful man. They really, like I said, had thoughtfully uh, come up with a plan, wanted to invest in people and knew that the membership would follow, but that the key thing was to get the right people in place. And I, I you know, I do think uh, having that experience in Hong Kong, uh, I had, you know, worked as a bit of a solo <laughs> Solo shop, um, but also someone supporting a much bigger team and and figuring out how to work really collaboratively with colleagues who are working virtually and <laughs> way before anybody else was. So I I was confident that I had the right uh, skill set as a you know in terms of my my working experience. Uh, I should say as well that I think that Singapore was the right place to do the the launch and to sort of establish the office there because Singapore is just sort of situated in this amazing the crossroads of the world but you do have the infrastructure there the Singapore government had decided that they were going to really put an emphasis on attracting like international nonprofit organizations they they have these different strategies and hubs and education and you know so again the timing was very good and I was just so excited at the chance to basically be part of building that international case presence in Asia Pacific and to be helpful to colleagues. I really enjoy professional development and kind of doing seminars and, you know, speaking at different conferences. So I thought, wow, this is going to be uh, something that's very hard to, to, to pass up given, given the sort of historic nature of it. And, and also to I mean, Singapore, as I said, is uh, it just, it appealed to me to kind of be based there because I loved you know, going through Singapore, it's an amazing, amazingly efficient 
place to be. It's, uh, you know, it allows you to see lots of different parts of you're so close to many interesting countries, right? You know, within, you know, an excellent uh, airport. <laughs> Love Chengi Airport. I miss Chengi Airport. So, you know, it just sort of seemed to me like it was like, how could I not do it when I had this opportunity? And uh, when I talk about being a solo shop operator, wow, I was a solo shop operator as we had um, amazing support from the team at the National University of Singapore and US who had agreed uh, to sort of co-host the space and gave us a really phenomenal deal in terms of, um, you know, like the actual space and also just being very good and helpful colleagues. But a lot of it was just figuring out all kinds of nuts and bolts, membership organization, implementation. So, you know, for example, and you probably get a kick out of this, Jay, like one of the things was, how do you take the case um, database, which, and you're dealing with a lot of, you know, Chinese names where the surname (laughs) comes first. And how do you, you know, I just remember these, you know, Amazing. Like, how are we going to, how are we going to get this? How are we going to get this all figured out? Cause that's, that's internationalization right at the front pointy end, right. Is figuring out how to do that. And, you know, so it was just, it was a lot of fun rolling up our sleeves. We did a big road show. We had, you know, visitors coming through, um, a lot of visitors in the office, which was fantastic. Like we'd have people, so I get to meet people coming into Singapore, but of course I was also out on the road, um, a lot of the time. And, uh, that was, uh, that was, I, I've, I love travel. I miss it. Uh, hopefully we'll at some point be able to get back to doing a bit more of it, but it was a huge amount of travel. It was uh, a lot of travel. So it, it was also during a period <laughs> I know where there was uh, not just growth for, for case with you and, and Joanna and, and others, but for all those organizations, all those universities and, and many other kinds of uh, civil society organizations throughout the region, um, a very different sort of era. What was it like to be in the middle of all that as they're discovering the power of philanthropy to their own organizations? Well, I should say, I mean, I think on the, like on the one hand, like Singapore is a bit of an outlier because Singapore is just like I said, when they decide they're going to do something, they're, they're on, they invest in training, they, you know, they're very organized. And so there were a number of opportunities to meet other people from the sector who were also setting up organizations in Singapore or going out to visit like the development teams, which were, you know, just exploding in terms of size at the Singapore university. So we were all kind of riding a wave again, just, I think really helping each other and sort of supporting one another. There were different secretariat operations that were there that, you know, we would often just informally share ideas about how to, how to get things done. So that was Singapore was the easy part. Um, I think the really challenging, but in some respects, even more interesting was going to a lot of these universities that had never done any kind of fun going to Thailand, visiting, you know, universities there where it was literally they were inventing the language because they didn't have words in Thai to describe what we were doing. Um, I had the chance to go an incredible trip to uh, Xi'an in um in, uh, in China, you know, the home of the terracotta warriors. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was a conference there for um, association of Chinese universities. And again, same thing, like doing presentations where it was being simultaneously translated and, you know, figuring out, well, how do you actually say this in Chinese? How do you describe it? 
how do you give examples that are going to resonate for that audience? And of course, now this would have been at very early in the journey. And now many Chinese universities are doing exceptional work running, running their own programs, but it was very much at the very early stages. And I think rightly so people were figuring out what they could take from a Western model and modify and, you know, adapt or completely change their own culturally appropriate environment. But it, yeah, it was just, it was a fast, it was a fascinating time. And I met some really incredible people and really enjoyed it. Um, had the chance to go to Japan a number of times, which was a, of course something we, you and I have a shared love for Japan. And, you know, again, just navigating some really interesting conversations about how, how this might work in a totally different place. And there was a, you know, I, the, the kind of appetite for knowledge, the openness to thinking about how they might do things differently uh, was really pretty incredible. Um, very few roadblocks. Like there were the occasional, like I said, very skeptical people who were like, this is never going to work here. But for the most part, you know, people were like, we got to figure this out. And, you know, we're not going to be left behind. And we can kind of see that what's possible with philanthropy and with having much more engaged alumni and other kinds of stakeholders, that's really for the benefit of our institutions. And so, you know, we're going to figure it out and it's not going to be perfect. It's going to be maybe a bit messy, but we are going to figure it out. And they did. <laughs> and and they did. I know there's, there's so much to unpack there that we could talk about it for hours, but I know there was a sliver of time in a way because you kept moving. So you were on then to the Rhodes Trust, I think it was, right? And so where were you based for that? Well, that, uh, I was, I was uh, basically invited to come and set up a global advancement program for the Rhodes Scholarships. And that's hard to say no to. Uh, so I packed up and sent my uh, my uh, container term my, you know, my you know shipping container I should say uh, to Oxford. So I moved from Singapore to Oxford. Um, and Rhodes Trust is a is a UK charity. They have a, a slightly unusual status within. They're kind of considered part of the University of Oxford, but they have their own independent charitable status. And of course, they don't offer any programs. They just have this amazing group of scholars that come through every year and are, you know, an amazing, like a truly extraordinary alumni group uh, for the University of Oxford. Um, so we are, you know, I would say the Rhodes Trust is sort of in and of Oxford, but not actually part of the University of Oxford. And, and so I think it's, it's fair, it's fair to say also that with, for those who don't know that uh, Oxford wasn't always a fundraising powerhouse either. They went they went through a period where they were also making decisions about whether to commit to this, and they and some of those were complicated decisions about where to accept gifts from and what they were willing to name, if anything. And but uh, of course, they've raised a tremendous amount of money after opening doors and and answering some of those questions. And so it, it wasn't a given that uh, people would just be able to raise a lot of money for Oxford and Cambridge, etc. No, well, absolutely. No, I think, again, you know, leadership is so important. The investment is so important in terms of, you know, saying we're actually, we are going to plant our flag and do this. And, 
it's going to, it's going to take time. It's going to take a lot of energy. And of course they do have an incredible story to tell and they have an amazing reach in terms of their alumni and their visibility, but it is a, it's a really interesting thing, I think for, you know, Oxbridge, because they have many of these built-in advantages of just the history and legacy, but they also have, I think, to overcome to some degree, people who are, well, why would you, they're such wealthy institutions. Why would I, why would I give to them? Because they already are so well endowed, which they are compared to some other institutions in the UK. So again, it's about making that really fresh case for support. And, you know, the Oxford thinking campaign, which was run, um, it was initiated by my old boss, John Delandria. Um, uh, it's a small world because it went from uh, John's stewardship to uh, Sue Cunningham, who's now the president of Case, and and then on to Liesl Elder, who was who was the director for most of the time when I was there. Um, they basically made it very much about we need to be relevant for the 21st century, and we can't be just resting on our laurels for you know the remarkable people who've come through here over the, you know, hundreds of years that we've been established. And, you know, I would say the same thing for the Rhodes Scholarships, because again, relatively well uh, endowed in terms of the, you know, and problematic in terms of where the money originally came from. But this was the world's first international scholarship program. And it had funded, I think, nearly 4,500 people um, or, or no, sorry, it had, it had funded way more than that. There were about 4,500 living Rhodes Scholars when I, when I started oh. in, in the job mm-hmm. and they were from, you know, they lived of course all over the world. And the whole thing there was how do we reframe what we do for the next century? So it was the whole second century campaign. What does it mean to be a Rhodes Scholar and how do you modernize and really make it relevant? And with that focus on leadership and service, um, so, and also, you know, there was some pretty urgent, <laughs> urgent need to raise the money because there were, you know, very pressing, um, financial pressures on the endowment just coming out of the global financial crisis and the cost of, you know, educating international students at Oxford was, was escalating dramatically. Um, you know, there were some pretty significant imperatives to actually really hit the ground running. Um, and that was, again, just a fascinating opportunity because you had this, remarkable group of people that had been through the Rhodes program and had studied at Oxford. And that was a transformative experience for them. And they're, you know, proud of, proud of their, their time as a Rhodes scholar, um, had never been asked to give money to the Rhodes trust. And indeed many of them, when they were students, the Rhodes trust would have been the kind of golden goose, you know, they had a lot of money and they Mm -hmm. were funding many other things within Oxford. So Again, culture shift. How do you start to actually say, you know what, this has got to be a collective responsibility, or it's not going to look the same in 10 years. It's not going to be the leading scholarship program if we don't come together to really make this stronger and not just give money, but actually invest our time and our energy in reimagining what the road scholarship is going to be for, you know, coming generations. I wonder how it was when you reached out to them and you invited them to participate for the first time, did they, how did they react? Were they, were they happy? Were they saying, what took you so long? Were they, what, what, what kind of reaction do you get? Well, I mean, it was sort of, I, I got to say there was of course no um, uniform, uniform response, <laughs> sure. but uh, I will say that very few people were disinterested. 
there was a high degree of interest. And of course, some very, you know, as you can imagine, that's a, that's an interesting group of people to be working with because there are some of the very, you know, uh, highly, highly engaged, uh, very successful in different, different industries and, and, and different institutions and political life and running big or university presidents, you know, this sort of thing. You have a lot of university people who, um, who were actually saying, you know, I feel a sense of responsibility and how I'm going to be part of this community varied, but very few people said, I have no interest in this. Some of them were more skeptical than others. Like what's the financial case? You know, why, what happened? Like basically what happened to change the financial position from one of plenty to scarcity. I think it was really fundamentally about engaging them in deep conversation. There was quite a remarkable process that was run by the warden of Rhodes House. Uh, his name was Donald Markwell, and he's actually the, the, the person who recruited me to the job. And, you know, Don did quite a remarkable thing working closely with the trustees and with other colleagues where they went out and did, they called it the Rhodes Strategic Dialogue. And I believe there were nine, I want to say eight or nine questions, not a huge laundry list, but really good strategic questions about what the future looks like for the scholarship. And I think Don went to every single Rhodes constituency, because at that time, the scholarships were allocated to particular countries. They've now, they they still are, but they also have now more like at large scholarships that are open to students from any country. But at that time, because this is all through basically through the will of Cecil Rhodes Mm -hmm. saying, you know, there's a scholarship for Bermuda. There are three scholarships for Germany, or I think there were two scholarships for Germany, but they, you know, they were sort of very defined where they came from. So Don did this, like I said, led this process where he went and they had, I think every Rhodes Scholar basically got an invitation to come to one of these sessions and a remarkably high number of them actually went and, you know, had the chance to, to have their say. And, Don would use that feedback. Now, again, he wasn't directly responding to every single suggestion that came up because that would be overwhelming, but Mm -hmm. looking at like, what are the general themes that we're seeing and right across the community, what are we hearing from people? And that's, what's going to drive the fundraising strategy is like actually looking at what's necessary, what we need to do as an organization. And then we are, you know, we're going to focus on participation, obviously, that's a kind of a key thing. And many of the, I should say many of the Rhodes Scholars, particularly like in the United States, which is I think about half of them live in the US, they were already being actively solicited for gifts to support the Association of American Rhodes Scholars. So there was a, you know, an organization within the US that did some fundraising for for that group, and -hmm. also for their colleges, you know, their home colleges at Oxford. So it's not that they'd never been asked, they just had never been asked to actually give money to the scholarship itself. Right. Right. So participation was a big thing, focusing on, you know, going to each of the classes, because they come, you know, they come to Oxford as a, uh, as a group, many of them kind of bond with their their classmates in that in that cohort. So trying to focus on getting just participation up, we had a, um, I think, a really successful plan giving push to kind of say we're going to create a road society and you've benefited from this enormous legacy. And that would be a wonderful thing because, as you know, plan giving um, legacies are just, I think, 
phenomenal thing over time to 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 always be thinking about. And then, of course, the vast majority of the money came from a small number of highly um, successful uh, people that just had the the capacity to make very large gifts, um, right. including I think it was the single largest gift in the UK in 2012, which was a, a gift from John and Marcy McCall McBain of 75 million pounds, which we were able to announce at the Rhodes 110th anniversary celebrations, which was in 2013. Um, and so that was by far uh, the biggest, uh, biggest gift ever to a scholarship program at that time in the United Kingdom. And it really, I think, sent out an enormous vote of confidence in the future of the scholarships. And, you know, John and, and his wife, Marcy, and their foundation have been just incredible people to work with and have gone on to fund um, other programs. Uh, they they set up a $200 million um, McCall McBain Scholars Program at McGill, um, which runs for the 200th anniversary of McGill University. So, you know, it's just great to sort of see that um, continuing to grow. But really, it was, you know, John who and John and Marcy who, you know, really... <laughs> huge lift to that campaign for the second century. And then there were a number of other really extraordinarily generous, like Julian Robertson from um, Tides and Management uh, gave seven and a half million pounds to basically capitalize the road scholarships for New Zealand. And, you know, people were doing this with not getting their name. Like it didn't suddenly become the Robertson road scholarship. Like they, you know, for that size of a gift, you would normally, be expecting, you know, almost a rebrand of the scholarship, but people were, you know, really very gracious in agreeing that the Rhodes name would continue to be. Yeah. Primary. I, I wanted to ask you about a couple of things in there. One is that if the, you had Cecil Rhodes uh, Testament, uh, which was said, this is, this is the way the money was to be distributed according to which country and how much money. And all. But by raising money, you not only made it possible to, continue doing the work, but you also probably made it possible to, to fund scholarships that you would not have funded under that under that uh, state. Um, so important. And, and it brings up another another question uh, without getting into the politics of it. Many people have debated this whole thing about our relationships with donors the last few years. And you just address part of it by saying this wasn't in the case of uh, uh, Julian Robertson, for example, it wasn't about putting the name on the scholarship. It was about supporting the work. And that's not true for every donor, but it's certainly true for many. Um, so one of the questions uh, that I have, as you went through this process and then later again, returning to the University of Toronto, is it, how much of this is a matter of providing the right kind of opportunities so that people can really be our partners rather than feeling like they're either being used as piggy banks, as one philanthropist has recently said, or conversely, that we have to make some sort of, you know, pledge to do whatever they want. It seems like those are the two fears in our sector. And right there with one of the world's oldest and most profound scholarship programs, you didn't do either of those things. And I think that was the right thing for the organization. And I think that the reason that the Rhodes Trust was able to do that. Partly, of course, was the Rhodes name. People know it. It's almost uh, a given what it sort of signifies. So, so there's lots of reasons why you would want to be associated with that. And just the track record in terms of the extraordinary 
people that have been supported over many generations, I think also just adds to that reputation and sense of affiliation being um, important. But I think the second thing is that the Rhodes trustees, uh, the board, um, who were remarkable um, and personally very generous, not only with their money, but also even more critically with their counsel and their expertise, they were highly, they are highly principled individuals and they were prepared to put in the time and to really carefully discuss with the donors why they were giving to the scholarships and what it made possible and why, you know, it was important to kind of stick to the, to the aspirations of the scholarship program, which was really about, you know, leaders for the world's future Mm -hmm. and, you know, the investment in these young people and that why giving, for example, to the campaign would allow the Rhodes Trust to offer more scholarships to students from Africa, which, you know, I think, again, is just a phenomenal thing to be able to say that now, you know, there are Rhodes Scholars coming from Ghana, from Kenya, from Nigeria, you know, from all kinds of places that um, previously weren't at the table. I think it was from a point of principle. I do, again, I I, I won't under <laughs> undersell the um, position of, you know, you, you've kind of got something that's already really established, right? You're, you have something that's got a real proof of concept over generations, but you also have to overcome. You know, some people would say like, where does this, this money come from? It comes from the very problematic uh, legacy of Cecil Rhodes and how that money was made because it was basically his estate when he died. And that was on the backs of many, many millions of black Africans in South Africa, what we call South Africa. And of course, Rhodesia, which was named after Cecil Rhodes, Zambia and Zimbabwe and, and many other countries nearby. So, you know, I think that kind of reconciliation piece and trying to actually be very open about the legacy of where this money came from, but what it has made possible and what it can make possible with, you know, partnerships and new new donors. It sounds like something that you were very aware of. And I mean, it's, that's, that's in your nature to be sensitive to those issues, but it's also something that our whole sector has been talking more about. uh, Finally, um, everywhere in the world. Uh, How do we make sense of the history we've inherited? How do we make a better future? Where do donors and the work of fundraising fit into that? That's that was even true, I guess, at the University of Toronto. So maybe to not to the same degree as with the roads, yeah, yeah. uh, but but uh, University of Toronto is such a major institution, serves so many people in uh, who are from Canada, but not just Ontario, and so many people from sure. throughout the world as a leading institution. Um, you know that even there, there have been uh, uh, thoughts about you know where does the money come from, what what is it that we want to do in the world next, and you return there, I'm sure with. Uh, many things in mind. So what, 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 first of all, when did you go back and why did you return? Was it uh, to, to work on that campaign of your, your school again? Or what, what was that about? And then how do those issues then play into the work that you did? Well, you know, Shay, I think, to be honest with you, some of it is just coming full circle. And I, you know, had lived away for a long time. And I felt that at some point, I had always saw, I'd always seen, I should say, I had always seen myself being back in Canada eventually. 
Um, it was just a question of when. <laughs> I remember, you know, making up lists with kind of pros and cons. And I thought, <laughs> if I wait until I'm much older, it's going to be that much harder to go back because you, know, you can never really entirely go home, right? Things have moved on. You've lit, like you've, if you've left, <laughs> I, I basically left when I was, you know, 21, 22 years old to, to work overseas. And I, even though I've been back on a, you know, very regular basis for, for work and for family and friends and other reasons, you know, it's kind of hard to go back. So I thought every, <laughs> Every year I wait, it's going to get harder and harder. It's just harder to kind of reestablish your life. Um, So it was the right time um, back. And I had an incredible opportunity to work leading the campaign for the Faculty of Arts and Science um, within the University of Toronto, which is the downtown campus. And for people who know Toronto, um, it's the St. George campus. And uh, today is St. George's Day, by the way. So that's kind of nice. (laughs) Today is St. George's Day. It's public holiday here in Newfoundland. That's another funny thing. Anyway, but it was the right time to be back. And arts and science is an enormously complex and fascinating um, uh, division. It's, I think, I think it's the largest faculty in North America. (laughs) How many faculty there? It's some, is it 2000 people or what? what, what? There's, there's, there are like a thousand academic, like professors. I think it's close to 30,000 students. Like, it would be bigger than most universities in Canada. I think on its own, it would be like the fourth biggest university, just that one faculty. And just the the range of things that happened within that was my home faculty. But, you know, everything from, I used to, my joke used to be, it was everything from, you know, astronomy to Zoroastrianism. That was, <laughs> that was a project that I worked on, um, Zoroastrians. And as someone pointed out, one of my, one of my dear colleagues who I just loved who was a professor of Islamic studies, but you know, he said the Zoroastrians of course were the ones who figured out astronomy. So, (laughs) so so anything from astronomy to Zoroastrians and then Zoroastrian astronomy. Anyway, it's, it's across like, um, so sciences, sciences and the humanities. And uh, I was, uh, and of course there was a massive boundless campaign, the biggest in the history of Canada and one of the biggest campaigns in North America. How much was that? Was that 2 billion or what was that? It was, it was, it was, I think it landed in the end at like 2.4 billion uh, when it was wound up in 2019. Mm -hmm. And so just to, you know, and again, it was one of these 10 years, it was a very comprehensive campaign. um, And I, you know, had the chance to work with an incredible dean. Um, his name is uh, Professor David Cameron. He is not the former prime minister of the UK. <laughs> you work for Dave Cameron. <laughs> and he's a political scientist. He's a very distinguished uh, political scientist. So um, I worked really closely with with David and some extraordinary uh, academic leaders across. Yeah, I think there were 31 different departments uh, within oh arts and science. So juggling a lot of plates. Um, we had some really interesting campaigns that we that we ran during my time there, um, including, you know, support for um, Iranian studies, which has been a really interesting and exciting field to see supported. There's some really, really significant new initiatives that have been funded coming out of that uh, boundless campaign. Um, also some, you know, very cool things around um, computer science, mathematics. I had the chance to work with some really extraordinary people and and obviously stewarding some very large gifts that had come in uh, before I got there. But uh, in total, I, I um, 
yeah, I was, I was going to say I was there for, I guess it would be in total. I was there for nearly seven years working primarily in advancement. Then I, I was also doing some community outreach and partner strategic partnerships work um, last couple of years that I was there um, at the university. So, and now I'm doing something totally different. So that's, it's all that's what I understand. <laughs> and it's, it's also timely work because we've all been um, uh, one way or another trying to contend emotionally anyway, as well as physically with the pandemic. And I guess you must be kind of at the heart of thinking about what that means in terms of relating to all the people who support your work. What yeah, Tell us a bit about that. What What are you doing today? Well, I have left the hallowed halls of higher education for um, eight nonprofit organization called the Canadian Mental Health Association, CMHA. Um, CMHA, I'm with the national organization. So this is the, it's a federation across the country. It's a really remarkable group of people that are totally about supporting people with um, mental challenges and promoting kind of mental wellness and a group of people that I, this is interesting because tomorrow is the birthday of CMHA's founding. It started oh. in, uh, it started on April 26th, 1918. Uh, their first meeting was at the uh, Chateau Laurier Hotel in Ottawa. And this was a leading group of people who wanted to, you know, destigmatize mental health um, because of course, like many places, uh, people who had mental health um, challenges were often incredibly isolated or, uh, you know, vilified, frankly, and, you know, pretty poorly treated or basically out of sight, out of mind. So this was a collective group. It's a lay group of people. You know, it's always been committed to kind of grassroots um, community provision of services. There are, I think, about 8,000 people across the country who work for CMH. It's an enormous, yeah. you know, coast to coast to coast organization. And um, I'm working as a strategic advisor to the CEO, uh, Mark. She's a, a really dynamic um, a person who started with CMHA as the national CEO, I think of like a few weeks before the pandemic started. So Margaret has been able to steward CMHA through just extraordinary times. And I guess in a really positive way, uh, there's been support for mental health and, and you know, groups like CMHA um, in an unprecedented way because of the pandemic. People, I guess, are a lot more vocal now than they were previously. Um, the research is there. I think just collective experience would certainly indicate that we are all in our own way navigating such difficult and interesting <laughs> And, you know, challenging times, we like to say kind of our time is now, this is the time and our big push is around universal access to mental health services, and to really kind of change the conversation. So it's not just about, you know, in Canada, about one in five people have a mental health challenge or, you know, mental health, mental illness um, at any one time, five out of five have mental health and all of us need to be mindful of our, of the, we're going through showing up for other people next week. We're launching our mental health week and the emphasis this year, like we have a theme every year and it's all about empathy and, you know, the importance of just showing up for people and, right. you know, not necessarily weighing in with a solution to everything, but actually just listening and being there for one another. So, 
yeah, it's early days. I've just, this is sort of month two for me with the CMHA. So I, I can't with any kind of authority really speak about it just to say I'm blown away by the caliber of, of colleagues that I have and the enormous reach of CMHA. And I think, you know, it's a, it's a terrific organization and I'm just having learning about this new sector and, you know, trying to think in my own way, what I can do to help in terms of the sort of fund development and, you know, thinking about partnerships and philanthropy uh, for this group, which, um, you know, I think is, is needed more, more than ever. So. Oh, absolutely. I'm, absolutely. Yeah, a great time. <laughs> uh, you know, Krista, I, th- you, you got to the word that is one of my favorite words, which is empathy. And we hadn't talked about that before under that word, but it, it does seem to be something that I'm sure was, a central point for all the different things that you've done professionally, I'm sure personally as well throughout this career you've been describing, because you were working in all these different environments with different languages, different cultures, different histories, different everything, let alone a different fundraising practice and philanthropy practices. Um, so people have to sort of feel one another and uh, be in, you know, be in another person's shoes in order to do that work. Um, empathy is a huge part of the work we do. Uh, And I wonder, this is a question I often ask people, if we can hold on to that as we move, hopefully, into a healthier time post-pandemic. I know it's a, I I don't think we're there, obviously, but when we get there, the issues you've been talking about, um, how optimistic are you that we can get people to continue you know, focusing on things like mental wellness and, um, and listen to others. Hey, I'm always a glass half full person. And I actually am feeling, even though we are like just living (laughs) through extremely uncertain times, I actually think that that awareness about what each of us are experiencing and that sense of, you know, and again, not to be naive about it. It's not, you know, kind of kumbaya. We're all in this together. I think we've, we've seen that, We've all experienced the pandemic very differently based on our position of privilege or, you know, things that we have um, that we have kind of in our corner. But I do think this focus on being empathetic as much as we can, listening to where other people are coming from and being open to those kind of conversations and asking questions, not trying again, not trying to sort everything out, but asking questions and genuinely listening. I actually am optimistic that we're we're moving into a better place when it comes to to these things. And, you know, I think there's probably going to be a few bends and interesting um, get thrown at us in terms of curveballs. But I do think this awareness of what makes for a good life, what makes for quality and connection with other people, I think that has been fundamentally upended by the pandemic. And I, I actually see it as something to be optimistic about, that we are going to see their, their work-life balance is changing. I think that employers are having to be a lot more flexible and for, and for good reason. And that's not out of an altruistic uh, position, but it's actually better for the organization um, to be more flexible and to let people kind of create what works better for them and for their families can still be very good for the organization. So I am optimistic and I, you found me on a good day because there have been days when it's just been like, oh, what's, <laughs> what's coming next between, you know, what the, the absolute, you know, 
unspeakable things that are happening in Ukraine and, you know, this crazy convoy trucker situation that we had here in Canada. Like, it's just, you know, we have been, (laughs) a lot has been, a lot has been asked of us, but we're still here. And I think we just have to do everything we can to show up for one another. And, you know, I, like I said, I do think empathy is something that can be cultivated. I remember going to a really interesting talk pre-pandemic um, business school at U of T. And there was a wonderful um, uh, professor from Stanford named uh, Jamil Nakfi, I think. And he had written a book about empathy and sort of the science of empathy and that you can, and I should, I'll double check his surname. That's some, um, I should remember, but Jamil Nakfi, I think is his name, but it was basically how, you know, you can actually cultivate empathy. It's not something that you're just innately born with. Some people are, I think some people just have a natural tendency to be curious about other people. Um, But it is something that, you know, with intention, you can actually cultivate in the way you can, you know, mindfulness or other sorts of practices. So I'm all for cultivating more empathy and spreading the gospel of empathy, because I think we need it more than ever. And I certainly see it as something for me, like that's one of my highest values as a, as a good colleague is curious and empathetic, because I think that's where a lot of the best work actually happens from being curious about people and having that, and again, kind of coming full circle. I mentioned to you when we first started chatting about this, you know, ancestor of mine who had, you know, um, navigate the world as a captain of a schooner. Think about, you know, these amazing stories of, you know, he was shipwrecked in Madeira for a year and just unbelievable stuff. And, you know, and you kind of think, but he always kind of came back and he, he was a great explorer, but he always came home. And so I think, you know, for me, I sort of feel like I'm now, I've kind of come home and I'm really enjoying this journey with CMHA because it's the empathy, you know, showing up for other people, being curious about the world. That for me has led to a really, I think a really um, reward here. And I love working in philanthropy and partnerships. I think the kind of work we do is truly a gift. So I'm continue to be optimistic. The Philanthropy Masterminds podcast is underwritten by DonorSearch, the world leader in donor intelligence solutions. Our producer is Jack Frost. Our theme music is Be My Remedy, composed and performed by House Say. You can subscribe to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find blogs, webcasts, and CFRE accredited webinars with our featured masterminds at DonorSearch.net or check the show notes and descriptions.